is formed without adequate evidence, and many times it's based upon a false assumption. No doubt we make these, these preconceived notions, these false assumptions all the time. Maybe we made them today. As we're in church and somebody walks in and we see the clothes that they wear and all of a sudden we make a, a judgment call about their life. Or maybe we see somebody driving through the parking lot and just based upon the type of car that they drive, we make a judgment call. Or maybe somebody comes in the doors and based on the greeting that they give you or the greeting that they do not give you, we make a judgment call. I remember when we were uh, just first married, uh, Brittany and I lived in a duplex in Hallsville. Duplex in Hallsville off of Willow Street. And I remember we're in these duplexes and, you know, in the, the evening time we'd go out in the yard, we'd walk down the road and we knew a, a guy that lived up the road from us. His name was Michael Purefoy. I don't see him. Is he here tonight? He's here somewhere. He's just a pagan, not in here with us, I guess. But anyway, and so we didn't know his, his wife at the time, but we knew Michael. And uh, I remember Brittany and I were talking because Michael would drive by, and we would both just wave and wave and smile, and he wouldn't even look at us. He just would, would drive by, and it, it just felt like he'd look at us and just look away. And so the next time we'd see him drive by, we'd wave and we'd smile and he'd just drive on by again. And it happened over and over and over again until finally we just decided they just don't like us. You know, we just, we went on with life and the Lord had it that they came to this church uh, several years back and we became friends and we were eating supper together. And they said, y'all remember when we lived down by y'all on Willow? We'd never forgotten it. Yeah, we, we remember that. <clears throat> And they said, well, you know, we would, we would drive by and we would wave to y'all and we felt like y'all would just snob us every time. We would drive by and we'd wave and we'd smile and y'all wouldn't look at us. And so they felt the same way about us. And so we both kind of felt like the other was snobbing the other based upon a false assumption. And now we like each other for the most part. And so, you know, the Lord <laughs> builds those bridges and you, you keep on going. But what's interesting is... Many times in life, when you make the wrong assumption about someone, it's hard to ever get over it. When you make the wrong judgment call, it's hard to ever overcome that in your life. And I'm afraid that for many followers of Jesus, for many believers, they have made the wrong assumption about Jesus. And we go through life and we try to make Jesus fit into this 21st century American society. And in the process, we try to make Jesus more like us and we become less like him. And it's as though we go through the Bible and we go through the Word of God and we try to pick and choose what we want to follow, pick and choose what we like. And if we don't like it, we just rip it out of our Bible and we keep on going. Perceptions about Jesus have varied over time and place. Some say he's a great teacher of wisdom. Some say he is a proclaimer of social injustice. Some say he's all about caring for the poor. Some say he is this wild-eyed apocalyptic prophet that is bringing on the judgment of God in the end of the world. Some say that Jesus comes and he wants to begin this political revolution advocating the overthrow of the government. 
Some say that Jesus comes and he wants to bring about this social revolution calling for a bottom-up peasant revolution. And so there's all these different views about Jesus, about who he is, and about what he wants. And even when you get to the religions of the world, they see Jesus, but they see him differently. To the Muslims, Jesus is a great prophet of Allah. He's only second to Muhammad. To the Gnostics and, and their counterparts in Hinduism, he is uh, an enlightened mystic whose spiritual knowledge can bring about a higher consciousness in union with the divine. When you look at the Mormons, they say he is the brother of Satan who came about by the union of Jehovah God and Mary. And when you look at the Jehovah's Witnesses, they say he is an exalted created being also known as Michael the Archangel. And so when you look at history and you look at society and you look at culture and you look at religions, everybody's got a view of Jesus and most of them are very different. The tendency is to make Jesus fit into the box that we want him to fit in. We want Jesus to come in and fit the needs that we have the way that we want him to meet them and the way that best suits our life. And that's why in today's world, many preachers, many men this morning got up from a pulpit like this and they preached the prosperity gospel. They say that what Jesus wants out of your life is for you to have great financial success and for you to be happy. And you know what happens when you preach that? The people come to it. They didn't preach like this morning. That was tough this morning, wasn't it? Most will skip over that passage, but they preach this prosperity gospel. The tendency is to ignore and pass over the scriptures that we don't like. We say, surely Jesus is okay with my life. Surely Jesus is okay with the things that I watch. Everybody else is watching them. Surely it's not that big of a deal. Surely Jesus is okay with the things I listen to. Everybody else listens to him. Surely it's not that big of a deal. Surely Jesus is okay that I laugh at these jokes at the job place. Everybody else laughs at these jokes. If I don't laugh at these jokes, I'm going to be pushed off to the side. And so surely Jesus is okay with the way that I'm living my life. And if that's not enough, we begin to make these rules and make these stipulations, and we add to it. It's not enough just to accept the word and accept Jesus. We want to become legalistic, and we want to say only the type of music that I like is appropriate. Uh Uh-oh, we get quiet right there, don't we? Only the translation that I like is appropriate. Only the way I like to do things is appropriate. And so we want to take away from the Scripture, and we want to add to the Scripture. And so I want us to spend a little bit of time and answer the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus, and what does he want out of my life? Who is Jesus, and what does he want out of my life? I believe that we need the veil removed so that we can see Jesus clearly, And we can know and we can understand the expectations that he has placed on our life. The Bible is full of the expectations of his followers, but we've got to open it up and find those and apply them to our life. You know one of the reasons that people fail 
is because they don't know the clear expectations. You ever been at a job and you had a job to do, but you weren't sure exactly what was expected out of you? That's a tough place to be. It's tough. You ever tried to raise kids and they don't know exactly what you want out of them? It can be a tough place. We're into um, baseball season right now. And, man, we are, we're all into it. We're having fun. We're winning. And so let's go Marlins, you know. And so I'm, I'm getting to coach, be one of the coaches on the team. And so I am the third base coach. I'm the one over here at third base trying to get these kids home. And so I tell them, I expect you to listen to me when I tell you to run. You don't look around. You don't see where the ball is. You just run home. And so the other day, Maddox gets on base, and he makes a good hit, and he runs on base. He goes to first. He goes to second. He gets on third. And I say, go, Maddox. And he starts to run, but then he sees where the ball is, and he comes back. Okay? And then I hear my wife. She's over here on the sides. You are going to get him out. What are you doing, coach? <laughs> Boy, that'll, that'll get you going in a hurry. And so then this is what happened, okay? We're, we're getting sidetracked. Don't have time, but we're going to finish this story. Here's what happens, okay? On our team, you've got the starters here, and they always get a hit. You know, they're going to get a hit. They're going to run the bases. And then you've got behind that some, let's just be honest, they will never hit the ball. You know what I'm saying? I mean, they, they will swing and swing and swing, but they will never hit the ball. And so when Maddox gets on third, I know who's coming up to bat, and I know if he doesn't get home, he's going to just die right there on third base. It's either go home and get out, maybe get saved, or you're just going to stand there for the next out. And so I told him that. I said, Maddox, when I tell you to run, you don't look around. You just run. Don't listen to your mama, you know? <laughs> Do not listen to that lady. And so the next time he got up, he had a good hit. He went to first. He came to second. He went to third. And they threw it to the third baseman. He dropped it right here. I said, Maddox, run. And he's running, running, running. That ball comes over his head. The catcher's about to catch it. And the catcher misses it. And the boy scores. <laughs> and that is what happens when you don't listen to mama. Okay? <laughs> But we've got to know the expectations. We've got to know what is expected out of us. Now, we're in Mark chapter 8. Here's what's interesting. In Mark chapter 1 through Mark chapter 8, we see thousands and thousands of people before Jesus as he ministers. If you just flip through the pages, you'll see that Jesus has driven out demons. He has cleansed lepers. And as we saw last week, he has healed a paralytic. He has taken a man with a withered hand, and he has given full restoration. He has healed a woman with an issue of blood, and he has raised a little girl to life who was dead. He has fed the multitudes not once, but twice. We're talking thousands upon thousands of people. He's given sight to one who could not see. And as he does all of this, the crowd is getting larger and it's getting larger and it's getting larger. Mark chapter 2, it says, uh, and when they could not get near him because of the, the crowd. Mark 2, 13, all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them. Mark 3, 8. And the great crowd heard all that he was doing, and they came to him. Mark 3, 9 and 10. And he told his disciples to have the boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. 
There's so many people, he's worried about getting crushed because they're coming from all over. Well, you get the point. Before chapter 10, the word crowd is used almost 40 times. And so masses of people are coming into the presence of Jesus. And the Bible says that they are just amazed in what they see. The word amazed is used in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 5, chapter 9, and chapter 10. The people come up and they say, we have never seen anything like this before. This is incredible. We just can't believe it. We've got to go find Jesus and we've got to see what he's going to do today. But then when we get To the end of chapter 8, the focus is no longer on the outsiders. Jesus begins to focus on the insiders. It's not on the crowds any longer. The focus is now on his disciples. Remember, I reminded you last week, it's not all about the numbers. Not all about the numbers. We cannot judge our success and our failure primarily upon numbers. Let me remind you this week, it's not all about the outsiders. There is a spot for evangelism. Remember, we saw that last week. We saw the ministry of evangelism with these friends who came and they came to Jesus and they would not stop. They would not let a roof get in the way. They would not let a crowd get in the way. And they brought their loved one to the presence, to the feet of Jesus. That is the ministry of evangelism. And every one of us ought to be bringing people to the feet of Jesus. Somebody say amen. Amen. Every one of us ought to be bringing people to the feet of Jesus. But at the same time, there's got to be a ministry of discipleship. There's got to be a ministry of discipleship where it's not always about those outside our walls, but it's about those inside the walls. You know what my greatest job is? My greatest job is not to stand up here tonight and deliver a message to you. My greatest job is that my Mason, my Maddox, and my Cason know what it is to love Jesus. Because if I fail at that, nothing else matters. If I fail in my home, if I fail about the ones that the Lord has given me under my roof day after day after day, then I have failed at life. It's not always about the outsiders. It's not always about the crowd. It's about the insiders. It's about those the Lord has has placed in your life. And so Mark chapter 8, we've got to move quickly. Look at verse 27. Mark chapter 8, look at verse 27. It says, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now, notice the wording. As Jesus went with his disciples, he's on the way when he asked this question, what is Jesus on the way to? He's coming to the end of his ministry He's on the way to humiliation. He's on the way to rejection. He's on the way to suffering. And he's on the way to death. And as they are strolling down the street, he looks to his disciples and he asks them a question. And he says, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? What are you hearing when you walk around town? What are the people saying about me? The perception of Jesus has been 
both ends of the spectrum. For some, they see Jesus and they are in love with his ministry and his message. To some, they are hostile to it and everything in between. And so he says, guys, as you're going through life, what do people say about me? Who do people say that I am? And the Bible says, and they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. The disciples answer, they say, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, and some say you're one of the prophets. Now, we don't have time to dig into this deep, but there's no Old Testament uh, personality that had such fascination as Elijah. And it was not because of his great works, even though he did have great works, but it was because of the way that he entered into heaven. Remember that in 2 Kings? The way that he entered into heaven. And so the people thought to Elijah, and they saw him as one who would oversee the deeds of the mortals. They saw him as one who would comfort the faithful and who would help the needy. They saw him as the one who was the forerunner of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And so there was this anticipation about Elijah. But on the other side, some believed he was John the Baptist. Remember what happened to John the Baptist? They killed him. They took his head. And the Bible says that Herod was was with a group. It says in Mark 6, King Herod heard of it. He heard of Jesus' name. It had spread, become well-known. And the Bible says that some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So there's already these rumors spreading that Jesus is really John the Baptist. Or maybe he's a great prophet. Here's the point. What they are saying about Jesus is very good. They're putting Jesus on the highest level they can think of. The the, the greatest men they can think of, Elijah, John the Baptist, or one of the prophets, they say that's where Jesus is. He is way up here. He's an incredible man. But can I just tell you this? Their greatest comparisons still fall way, way, way short, don't they? Our greatest comparisons as we think about Jesus and as we try to compare him to these great people that we know of throughout history, they do not hold a candlestick to Jesus. It's not adequate. It doesn't make sense. There's nobody close to the Messiah, Jesus. And so they say, who do people say that you are? They say that you're Elijah. They say that you're John the Baptist. They say that you're a great prophet. But none of that comes close to who Jesus is is and then Jesus turns and the Bible says and he asked them but who do you say that I am but who do you say that I am boy that's an important question isn't it he says it's not so much about what they think but I want to know exactly what you think we're in the middle of the journey we're not at the end of it And I want to know what you think about me. I want to know where you find me. I don't don't care about the polls. I don't care about the popular opinion out here. I don't care about where everybody else sits because it doesn't matter what everybody else thinks. I want to know what you think. Because until we know the true identity of Jesus, until we understand his mission, we will not be true followers. If we make Jesus up, if we make him who we want him to be, 
and we make him okay with our life, and we make him okay with our culture, then that is not the Jesus in the Bible. And I don't know what we're following, but it's not Jesus. And so we've got to come to realize who Jesus is. And so the question is, but who do you say that I am? Now, notice when this has happened. The disciples have seen a lot, hadn't they? I mean, we already established that they have seen the healings. They have seen the miracles. They have heard the teaching of Jesus. Jesus is not asking them at the very beginning. They have had time to come up to the conclusion in their life. They don't need any more deliberations. They don't need any more evidence. They don't need any more data. They don't need any more observations. They don't need any more discussions. They don't need any more explanations. The disciples must move from the status of passive recipients to active participants in following the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants them to step out now and see who he really is. The central question in the Gospel of Mark is who do you say that Jesus is? Now listen, your answer, it doesn't change Jesus, but it does change you. Your answer, who do you say Jesus is? It doesn't change who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is God. But the way that you answer that question will change your life. Up to this point in Mark, only God and the demons have recognized Jesus as the Messiah. There has not been one human individual who has spoken that Jesus is the Messiah. Only God and the demons. But it says, and Peter answered, answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. You are the Christ it comes from the Hebrew word for Messiah, which means the anointed one. Anointing in the Old Testament came to three groups of people, the prophets, the priests, and the kings. The kings influenced who the people saw as the Messiah and who he would be. They saw the Messiah as the next great king that was even greater than David. They saw the Messiah as the one who would come and he would establish a kingdom and he would protect the kingdom on earth. The Messiah would be one, as Luke 24 says, who is powerful in word and deed before God and before all the people. He would have miraculous powers by the work of the Holy Spirit. He would be holy. He would be free from sin. He would be the anointed one, the true king of Israel. And God would destroy the enemies through this great leader. They looked at the Messiah and they believed the Messiah would be the one who would come and deliver the Gentiles from their, uh, their domination here. And would gather the Israelites from all over and set up this kingdom. And you'll notice that when Jesus comes, he's the Messiah, but he does not feel the stereotype, does he? Jesus doesn't come as this great military leader. Jesus doesn't come and set up this earthly kingdom. And so Peter says, I know who you are. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And he's right. But he doesn't quite understand who Jesus is yet. Well, let, let, let's keep going. And he began to teach them 
that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus listens to Peter's response and Peter is getting there. He's getting close. And so he begins to teach them. And he says, this is what's going to happen. The Son of Man is going to suffer many things. He's going to be rejected, and he's going to be killed. And so this Messiah that you're looking for, this great military leader, this great king, this great warrior, this great man of power, you said that I am the Christ. You said that I'm the Messiah. Let me tell you what that's going to look like. That's going to look like suffering is what it's going to look like. It's going to look like pain. That's what it's going to look like. It's going to look like death. And look what Peter does. And he said to them plainly. In other words, he's not speaking in parables at this point. He's telling them straight up, I am the Christ, but it's not going to look the way that you hope it's going to look like. He's talking plainly to them. And the Bible says, and Peter took him aside and began to, what's it say? Rebuke him. Can you imagine Jesus is telling about his mission, and Peter comes over, and he pulls Jesus to the side, and he begins to rebuke him. Jesus, you know that's not right. Jesus, you are the Christ. You're not going to suffer. Jesus, you are mighty. Jesus, I have seen your might. Jesus, I have seen your power. There is no way this is going to happen. And you get the point that Peter is a little irritated by it. It's strong language, isn't it? says that Peter pulled him off to the side and he begins to rebuke. And then it says, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And he said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You thought Peter's rebuke was strong? Jesus looks over at Peter in front of the disciples and he says, get behind me, Satan. What you are talking about is not the plan of God. You're trying to offer a shortcut. I'm not going to take a shortcut, so get behind me because I am on the mission of God. And he looks at Peter, and he says, and Peter, you've totally missed it. You're all about the power. You're all about setting up this kingdom. And you have the right words as you call me the Christ, but you don't even realize what that means. Here's my question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Is Jesus simply whoever you want him to be? Is he the one that's going to make your life easy? Is he the one that's going to give you success? Is he the one that you can just mold any way you want to mold him to put him inside this box? Or is Jesus the one who comes in and he takes over? He takes control. He takes the steering wheel, he takes the reins, and he is in charge. Well, we got to close, but it says in verse 34, In calling the crowds to him with his disciples, he said to them, Now he's laying out the expectations. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake... And the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me 
and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and of the holy angels. We'll look at that here in the near future. He's laying out the expectations. He says, Peter, you've missed it. You know what it is to be my follower? To be my follower, it means that you come after me and you deny yourself. You deny yourself of the things that you want. You take up your cross, an instrument of death, and then you follow me. He's talking about total sacrifice. Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes.